if you if you're not comfortable going out and and being in the homeless shelter or going and talking to the person who's running a uh, a food pantry you got to get comfortable you got it's great you, you, you know, we all know this as business leaders every time you go into an uncomfortable situation it changes you maybe the challenge is to get people to be uncomfortable and to meet people they don't know that was Pete Youngman president of Cook Group and Cook Medical talking about how corporate executives should get engaged in their communities in order to best effectuate DNI initiatives that benefit their organizations, employees, and their communities. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Pete, thank you so much for joining us on the Freedom Forum podcast. We're so excited to have you. Um, we've been looking forward to this conversation. So thank you again for joining us. I- I'd like to start by you telling our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that may have led to you becoming the president of Cook Group and Cook Medical. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, one of the factors, I suppose, a big one was probably luck. I grew up in Crown Point, Indiana, so or in the Northwest or the region, as we call it, and uh, we call ourselves region rats. I don't, you know, that's uh, that's what we used to call ourselves, anyways. But I went to undergraduate law at IU and then to um, graduate law school at the Maurer School, and knew a lot of people in Bloomington, obviously, over those seven years, and got to meet some folks who worked at Cook. Then moved away for a while and then came back when they had an opening for an attorney and it wasn't a real hard sell to try to recruit somebody back to Bloomington after you've just been there for seven years. So a little bit of luck in that regard, I'd say. You you just mentioned that your background is from Crown Point, Indiana. So you're an Indiana native, a Hoosier boy through and through, and that you received a philosophy and psychology undergrad at IU, which I didn't appreciate previously, and then got your degree from I don't think I- my parents appreciated it either when I <laughs> made that decision. Well, I hope they appreciate it now. <laughs> <laughs> they do now. And also your law degree, which, you know, as an attorney myself, I can appreciate all the things that having a law degree do or don't do for you with whatever, you know, the case may be. Um, But but I'd like you to tell us how you believe that background at IU with those majors helped prepare you to be president of a large medical company that not only deals with medical devices, but also hospitality and life sciences. So you're all kind of in a little bit of everything. How do you think that background prepared you for what you're doing today? It's a great question. And I think it's, I think about that a lot, actually. I, you know, a liberal arts degree, which is what IU really is known for. And I was part of the College of Arts and Sciences there. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I wanted to go to school. I didn't have a, a dream. I, you know, I never imagined I would be doing what I'm doing today. But because of the school and because of the offerings, it kind of just allowed me to follow my curiosity. And so I was always curious about how people thought and what people, how they dealt with big issues. And so that kind of led me to the philosophy side of things. So I feel like the philosophy education gave me sort of a broad background, of, excuse me, of how people think about things. How do they solve these issues? How do they try to work their way through them? And then I got curious about how the brain works and how that come, you know, how do those thoughts come into your mind and how do you how do you process them? So I was able to do that through psychology. And then I always kind of knew I wanted to go to law school, but I feel like the best thing that came from the law school experience was learning about how people in collectives or in in societies think about big issues and how they put that into action. So I feel like I use those three disciplines all the time, trying to navigate complex business issues, and and uh, I'm not sure it's a pathway that. Probably maybe a little bit unusual pathway, but I feel like it really helped along the way. Yeah, I, I appreciate you are probably one of the few people very similar to myself who said, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a dream because, you know, now they teach kids like you need to figure out what you're going to do for the next 50 years. And the reality is, you know, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I didn't even know what options there were to do with regard to career decisions. So I, I appreciate that, you know, you saying that and me living that are not negations of the opportunity to find super awesome career opportunities and explore them and thrive in them, even if it wasn't a dream when you were in third grade or eighth grade or whatever the case may be. So No, I absolutely agree with that. I feel like that's I feel like that's more common than what people want to admit is that people don't really know. 
and you start to get anxious, right? Like I have kids who are 15 and 10, two boys and my 15 year old sophomore and start thinking about, well, what does he want to do? What's he want to do? And I, I don't want to make him put him in a box and say he has to do this or that. And I want him to find his own way. I do think though, it's important to be curious and to actually have that genuine curiosity and want to be part of something, whatever that is, uh, to find your pathway there and, and, you know, may change over time, but that's the key component to me is wanting to learn more and expand through that process. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I think in addition to your need to be curious and having that genuine curiosity, for me, I truly believe having exposure opportunities because you just can't know what you don't know, right? You can be curious and seek answers, seek things, but it's hard to aspire to something that you don't know exists or is even an option. So I think those two together, your genuine curiosity with the exposure opportunities really does illuminate all the possibilities or at least plenty possibilities that you can navigate to whatever end you may see. Well, you think about exactly right. So you think about, I was very fortunate to have parents who could help me go to college and help me go to IU. They'd gone to IU. I think they knew the benefits of it. And so that was always the expectation was I was going to go to college. And to be in a place where you have this amazing, these amazing resources where you can follow your curiosity, people don't have that all the time. And so we're very fortunate to have had that experience and to be able to, to be in a place where people want to support you in that curiosity. That's absolutely true. So let's talk about Cook a little bit. So, you know, you we're talking about that wasn't necessarily a dream, but you got to know people at Cook during your college experience. And so now that you are the leader of this fine organization that is a family-owned company, right, as compared to so many of the publicly traded companies that have stakeholders, and so that, I would assume, brings in a whole different set of issues and considerations, how do you believe your leadership and your leadership team uh, have more or less been given flexibility or autonomy or not because you're leading a family-owned company as compared to a publicly traded company, particularly around diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives? Do you feel like you've been given more bandwidth, you know, more opportunity, or you feel a little more closed in and a little more aligned on the path because you're at a family-owned company? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I, I would say the family that owns this company is an amazing family, right? First, start with that. They, they have the right principles, the right values. They're in this for the right reasons. And so that does give you flexibility in terms of they aren't hitting us every month for what's our quarterly report going to be. It's how's the business? How are we making this a great place for people to work? Are we being good partners in the community? Are we creating new products to solve more more problems? So that's, a you know, that that's a little bit different. But of course, we always have the same financial pressures that everybody does, right? You're in business and those pressures are the same thing, whether you're a public company or a, fi- a private company. So I feel like it's just, it starts with the foundation, the morals and the culture. And I suppose that's true at any organization you go to, right? You can you have a good culture or a negative culture and that's going to drive how you think. So I know that, you know, Cook has been very proactive and we'll talk about, you know, so many of the things that you all have done and are doing since the, the events of 2020. But I appreciate that Cook was really proactive in some of its diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives well before 2020. And one of the things that has stuck out to me was your My Cook Pathway program. I, I'd like you to tell our listeners a bit about the My Cook Pathway program and, and how it got established in 2016. So again, well before 2020, and how that has helped you grow a diverse workforce, a diverse work culture that that really does exemplify inclusivity in its values. Yeah. So maybe before I talk specifically about the education program, I'll give you a little bit of background about how we think about it. So, you know, one of our core, our, sort of our, our purpose statement for all, you mentioned we had a lot of different businesses. We're in medical devices. We're in hospitality. We're in life sciences. The thing that sort of unites all of these companies together is that, that, more, that cultural and moral underpinning of the family. And if you look at our purpose statement, it says we're a, a collection of companies that exist to in, uh, empower people and communities to reach their full potential, which is is a, is a different way of thinking about things maybe. And so what we started doing was looking at what are the ways that you can help people create upward mobility in their lives? Uh, what are the things that we can do as, as a business or as a member of the community to create that upward mobility? Bill Cook, who was the founder, would always say, he said, the best thing you can do for somebody is give them a job, Right. And he was a big believer in that the job will create upward mobility. 
And so we've extended that thinking some. We've we've now say the best thing you can do for somebody is give them a job and an education, because so many that that education is sort of a foundation of that upward mobility. And so as we started to figure out how do we get people on this pathway, we found a lot of obstacles. It could be uh, racial inequity. It could be um, somebody doesn't have the right education or a sufficient education. It could be somebody who's experiencing homelessness or mental health issues or uh, been incarcerated. And so we started putting programs around all those things saying, how do we help solve those obstacles? First thing we went to was education. And I was in a meeting one time with a woman who worked here at Cook. And she said, you know, I've worked here for 30 years. I love this organization, love the company. I want my, my son to come work here, but he doesn't have a high school diploma. And that sort of struck me as odd, right? There's somebody, of course, we want that person to come work here, but that obstacle shouldn't be there. And so we created a program where people could come work part-time in the morning and then go to school in the afternoon, but we pay them full-time. We have 25,000 adults of working age here in our area who don't have a high school diploma yet. And they're at risk of not having that upward mobility, I think, because of that. So we want to take that away. We now have over 300 graduates through that program. Uh, it's been very successful. The people have ranged, ranged in age from 18 to 60. We've had people who've been out of school for 40 years going back to school and telling their stories of what it means to them. And so that was the first obstacle we wanted to take out of the, out of the mix. And I think that does create a diversity in your workforce because it, it creates people that maybe – you would have never considered before, or you wouldn't have had their perspective, which I think is very valuable. And I, I, I have lunch every time we have a graduating class from that program. And I can tell you, I would say over 50% of the people that are in the program are women who dropped out of high school because they got pregnant and they just didn't have the resources or the support to be able to continue. And, and then the most interesting thing they all say is almost everybody says is I'm doing this because I want my kids to see the value of education. And they're doing it for themselves, but they're really doing it for their kids. And that to me is, I think, that, that that's the generational shift that you want to try to create. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely believe, even for my own life, education was the key. I mean, I come, I'm the first graduate, college graduate in my family. I was the first one, you know, and I know that has changed the trajectory in my life. And like, just like the people that you've talked about. You do it for your kids. I want my kids to have a better opportunity than I had. My mom wanted me to have a better opportunity than she had. So I can absolutely appreciate the necessity for education. For me, education was the key to the riddle, right? It's the so key. can I ask you a question about that? So sure. you're the first in your family to have graduated. What was it about what was it that got you to that pathway? What was it inside of you that made you want to take that path? I knew it was the only path. My mother had drilled that into me since I was a little kid that in order to get out of poverty, in order to have the opportunity to have a better life, you have to be educated. So she had drilled into me that college was going to be the answer from the beginning. Just like you said, you know, my parents went to college, so I knew that was the path. I knew it was my path because my parents had not gone to college and my mother was adamant that that was the key. So she was on me about my grades. I always had good grades. I was valedictorian. And quite frankly, it wasn't that hard. I mean, I tell people all the time the, about the only benefits to being diverse and being poor is a free education. And that was the <laughs> truth. I mean, I went to college on scholarship. I got Pell Grants, you know, because we were poor, you know, and I had good grades. So I, that was kind of drilled into me. So now I'm your parents. Both me and my husband went to college and we've drilled into our son. That's the path. And so I think he's kind of in your shoes where that's all he's ever heard. That's all he ev has ever known. You know, he knows that that's kind of the path that's laid out for him. Yeah, but boy, that first gen that you're talking about that first generation for you to do that in that first generation has to be hard in some ways, I would think. But once you do it, then the expectation is set and that changes that next generation. That's exactly right. But but what you're doing through that program is enabling the next generation, right? It, it wasn't necessarily the first generation. So, you know, that got the GED or got the high school diploma, but so many of those people may go on and certainly the expectation for their kids will be, okay, I got a high school diploma, so you need to be going to college, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And they, they say that. They say it's, I want them to see the value. And I have that. One mother said, how can I tell my kids they have to do their homework when I haven't graduated high school? Yeah, yeah. Right? How do I set that expectation? Now they can. And they also, they also talk about this weight that's been lifted off their shoulders. 
uh, which I find very interesting. It's a very common discussion that there was sort of this anxiety and almost embarrassment a little bit. They didn't want to talk about it. And now that's gone, it just changes how they feel about education, how they can talk freely about it, and how they can set that expectation with their kids. Well, also, we know when you enable and empower women, particularly women with children, you have already changed the trajectory of what their offspring, their kids will be able to do. So there's no question if primarily the people you affected through that program were women, and particularly women who had children, I have no doubt that you not only change their life, but literally change the lives of their kids and what they will be able to do. So that's just an absolutely amazing example of a program that you can, you know, incorporate in your organization. And I want to highlight that you said they work during the day, they go to school in the evening, but they get paid full time. And I think- Well, they actually work part-time in the morning. So they work in the morning. That's right. And then in the afternoon, they go to school. So they get, they're working part-time in the beginning, but then we pay them full-time. It's a minor expense, to be honest, in the grand scheme of things. Because you get employees who come out of that feeling like you are now a partner with them in their life and in their career and how they want to, how they, how they're trying to be successful. So, the loyalty, uh, the sense of connectivity—that's a small price to pay. And you know, there are so many community partners out there who will provide that education for free. There are so many great partners that are out there available. So. The expense is not shouldn't be a barrier for anybody to incorporate that. Yeah, I, I I just was going to say the loyalty because we know. I mean, these days companies can't expect loyalty. You know, especially not in the age of remote work, etc. So a program that kind of drives and incentivizes, you know, your employees to be loyal to the company. You know, when when things aren't so good. When maybe Cook hits a a tough spot, they will remember, well, you know, I wouldn't be here had it not been for them. So I'm going to ride it out and see what happens. And that is not what you're getting in a lot of, you know, employees and personnel these days. Nope. Companies are becoming transactional. And what I feel like is we had, so we also actually offer beyond high school, we offer a free education to our employees all the way up to a master's degree. And because we believe in education and we actually don't put any golden handcuffs on. We don't say, you know, you got to stay for three years. We pay up front. It's not a reimbursement program. Our old program used to be a reimbursement program. We had about 75 employees participating, but most people couldn't afford to pay for it up front and then wait. And so once we changed it to a we prepay and it's free, it went to a thousand participants in that. So it shows you the the pent up need that was demand that was there for people who wanted to take that opportunity. And you no, know, we've had people leave too. I, honestly, I'll tell you, we had somebody who was one of our first students. She was awesome. She moved here from Chicago for the opportunity and she stayed with us for a few years, but she graduated and then she went on to nursing school. Fantastic. We need nurses. We desperately need nurses. Absolutely. And that's better for our community. We're all better off now. So we were were happy for her experience here, but then she went off and became a nurse. Well, I, I just wanted to highlight, and you've given me even more details, but these are real programs that I've not heard and certainly don't hear on a regular basis that companies can incorporate to really drive the loyalty, drive the education level, drive the employee force, right? I mean, that are absolutely, and I would believe it, are certainly a real budget, but cost significantly less than the amount of turnover and training new folks and all the things that come with employees that aren't loyal to the company. Almost certainly. I mean, you can look at the return on the investment. The retention is higher. Uh, It's easy to show the benefits. So just at a purely economic level, it makes sense. But I think it's different in the sense that if you're, when we, if you have a reimbursement program, let's say for education, Employees view that as, well, I'm giving you something back. I'm giving you two, three years. So it's like a it's like a contract. But if we say to you, no, it's fine. If you stay, we hope you stay. But if you don't, go off and be be well, prosper. Now all of a sudden, we're partners with them in their life, and they view that as not as a contract, but as a as a partnership. And that's a very different mental paradigm, I think, for people. Well, and I also think it shows the financial barrier, right? Like how many people took you up on the offer when you all paid first, which means just like you said, 
people can't afford to pay it up front and then get reimbursed. I just had a colleague the other day say, I'd go back to law school if you all pay for it. So the financial barrier is a real one. Uh, and, and I think that also exemplifies and, and has shown how you overcome that hurdle. I, I'm sure CEOs and executives in the company would like to know, what is the return on that investment? Have you been able to monetize how much money you've either saved or how much money that Cook, not you, but Cook has saved or either regotten on their investment in these programs? Do you have any idea of what that so we looks like? So we track the, the retention rate is certainly higher amongst folks who participate in these programs. It's hard to quantify when we, I'll give you an example. It's hard to quantify somebody who goes back and gets a master's in a certain area and they stick with the company for five years. What is the value now that we have somebody who has moved to a higher position and has taken on a new responsibility? What's the value of that? How do you quantify that? So clearly the retention though, that's one easy, easy way to return that turn investment, but the upskilling and the, the loyalty are things that are more qualitative than quantitative. And I haven't figured out a way to, get, to measure that yet. Sure. But, but the bottom line is what you do know definitively is it hasn't broken the company. You know, you've <laughs> got a much better workforce. You've got more loyal and happier employees. And to your point, that that is more valuable than certainly the money, but that is a real value to the company. I just got an email yesterday from an employee in Canada who is part of our program. They're in Canada, but they're part of our program getting a master's degree through Purdue Global because one of our partners. And their response was, I would have never had this opportunity in the community I live in. I, I, I just, the resources don't exist here. If it wasn't for this job, I would have never had this opportunity to, to make this happen in my life. How do you measure that? And maybe that person stays forever, maybe they don't, but certainly the impact that it had on them and their family is, is significant. And all of a sudden, that person views us as, hey, they helped enable that for me. That has to mean something. And the, and they will be advocates of the company, whether they're at the company or not, for the rest of their life, right? They will continue to advocate for Cook. You should go there. It's a great company. As they receive and learn and mentor new talent, they'll be saying, oh, you should go to Cook. I've got a great company for you. So you absolutely will get that return on investment. But I appreciate you highlighting that all return is not necessarily measurable or capture, you know, and, and quite frankly, Pete, it sounds like a lot of this is just morally driven. It's the right thing to do. It's the good thing to do. It's the proper thing to do. It is that. It, 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 for sure, that is that. But it's also it's because we can, right? So a lot of I hear a lot of people talking about education, and they keep wanting to fix the education system. And I keep thinking, well, why not? Why not be part of the solution? Why not work on helping making it better, rather, rather than waiting for the the government or the schools to 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 give us the right exact person to show up at our door? Why don't we be part of that? We know how to educate people. We know how to train people. We know how to partner with education. Uh, organization. So I guess that's the difference. Uh, I think it's in our DNA to try to be active, to try to be part of the solution. Uh, and that's, I think, as all these topics we'll talk about today, I think that that's the core of it is you can't sit back and wait because quite frankly, as an organization the size of Cook or any big organization, we have a lot of people and a lot of know-how and a lot of talent that just doesn't exist everywhere. We should be utilizing that for the for the best possible outcome we can. Yes, yes. I, I love that. And I, I thank you for really explaining it and telling us the history because at least for me, that's very motivating. And I hope that, you know, our listeners, the people in positions of power and other companies are hearing this and getting some glimpses, you know, some stars and twinkles and lights are going off at, okay, I, I think we could make something similar to that happen, something like that, whatever the case may be. So as a majority male executive, we've talked about the fact that you lead a family-owned business. And, you know, I I'd like to know in the wake of some of the more recent things like 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, how have you personally experienced the call of action around diversity, equity, and inclusion, racial equity, social justice over the last couple of years? You mentioned this briefly, but I'd like to know how you have experienced it more personally as the leader of a company, as a majority male, and just kind of how has that felt 
from your vantage point, because we've heard a lot about, you know, the diverse vantage point. Certainly, I've been an advocate for what that has felt like, but I'd really like to know how that has felt to you. Well, that's a another great question. So as a white dude, I guess that's the majority. <laughs> I, mean, I, was a white I wasn't dude. gonna say that, Pete, but you said it. <laughs> well, I that's something I think very carefully about and a lot about. Because a lot of these issues we're talking about, I don't have the experience. I don't there I have not I grew up as a white male and uh we talked about all the things that come with that and all the, the pathways that I took. So I guess where I decided that I wanted to be in this was I wanted to be an active partner in the solution. And in some part, not, not the whole solution. I, we obviously can't solve the whole world. But to be part of an organization and part of a process that was intentional about being forward-leaning lean, and, and action-oriented and trying to create real, meaningful change in people's lives. And that's, I think, where, you know, as you mentioned, when George Floyd was murdered, we had – we watched as a lot of companies put out statements. They, they, you know, they, they, social media was around there and it just felt like it felt like it was of the moment, but it, I wasn't sure it was going to actually drive change. And so we looked in our organization and said, well, what, what opportunities do we have from a business plan? So rather than saying just, just or just philanthropy, right? So philanthropy helps no doubt, but our, if you look at our philanthropic budget, it's minuscule compared to our operating budget. And so we thought, well, what are the ways that we can use our operating budget and our and our and our business opportunities as a way to make a difference? And that's kind of how we ended up uh, on the northeast side of Indianapolis. So I, I'm going to get there, but I, I want to ask you. You you mentioned um, your well, I'm going to mention authenticity, and you mentioned you know as a white dude, I I, I feel like you have a lot of empathy. But we talk in diversity training and equity and inclusion, any kind of training, there's going to be a lot of talk about empathy. You know, you should have empathy. You seem to have that. You seem to kind of get it. You can seemingly, now I don't know you from Adam. I mean, this could be a great act, right? But but I've lived on this earth long enough that I think I, you know, am a decent judge of people. And you seem to have a empathetic spirit. You know, you're trying to make things better. You're trying to lead from the front. You're trying to be a mechanism to, you know, solve the problem, not add to the problem. But there's often a lot of talk about empathy and why, you know, people being empathetic. And my question for you would be, why is that so hard for people? Why is empathy a challenge? What causes people to not have the ability to consider what it may be like in someone else's shoes and have a bit of compassion for that space, you know, for for some challenges that you may not have necessarily experienced, but can understand how life happens, right? And people just aren't, what what causes that? And I know you're the psychology philosophy major, so <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that people have been trying to answer that question for a long time. <laughs> I think the there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. Yes. And I see a lot of people who are sympathetic and not maybe not as much empathetic. I think it goes back to curiosity. I've always been very curious to understand about people's lives and what works and what doesn't. So I'll, I'll watch, you know, you watch the news and you watch or you watch, you know, your local media or just the internet and you see like, oh, that's really having an impact or that's a lot of fluff and nonsense and that's not really doing anything. And I always want to know why. What's the difference between the two? And the mechanism I've always used for that is to just get out and meet people, right? So my mechanism is I want to meet everybody. I want to meet them where they're at. I want to be in their house. I want to be at their place of work. I want to be at their church. I want to be at their not-for-profit. I want to get to see what they're passionate about. That's, to me, the difference. I I think what separates people empathy from sympathy is a lot of people can be sympathetic about a situation. It's harder to be empathetic unless you want to get out and 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 just be in the situation, right? Get to know people, understand their lives. And that's the approach I've always taken is I want to get to know people. I want to hear directly. I want to listen. I want to understand. So I don't know. I guess it's because to me, when you're sitting across from somebody and they tell you the story and you see it, it's really hard to not think about, okay, well, what resources do we have that we could use as, you know, as an opportunity to address some of those situations? So that's, I guess, the approach I've taken. Yeah. So what you're saying is, 
empathy means you got to sometimes get a little uncomfortable, right? Get with the people, go to the, you know, nonprofit, the church meeting. And sometimes that's completely out of your comfort zone. I don't know anything about going down the first Baptist of whatever, you know, but I'm going, you know, that's where my people are. They're going to have a meeting. And I, and I appreciate that because I think a lot of people try to play it real close, meaning play it from the sidelines. Yeah, we're going to throw money or we're going to make a statement or we're going to do stuff, but I don't want to get uncomfortable. I don't want to go down to that neighborhood or I don't want to actually go to the folks house and talk to them. Right. You know, and, and that does take another level of putting yourself a, a vulnerability, right. Of putting yourself in uncomfortable positions to really understand how people who may not be like you live, experience life, experience situations, et cetera. So I appreciate that. I mean, that's not easy to do for I think you've people. nailed it. I think you've nailed the exact challenge. You asked the question, why do, why, why do people have a hard time being empathetic? It's because we become far too comfortable in our circles. And I think that's the, one of the biggest challenges I see, especially from you know, business leadership, political leadership, uh, any kind of leadership really is people don't want to be in an uncomfortable situation. I mean, I was luck. I was fortunate enough in our project in the East Side to meet some really good people. Ashley Gervitz being one of them, and what she did was she said, "Hey, come and meet the folks." And I was like, "Awesome, let's do it. Let's go talk to people." And you know, so me walking into a neighborhood as a white guy, I feel like it is a little bit uncomfortable for me because I, you know, I didn't grow up in a black community. Are people going to trust me? Are they not going to trust me? Um, and so I feel like I need to be as honest and transparent and and just curious again about what people need and what they want and and try to be part of the solution not to come in as some sort of like we're here to save the day yeah 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 you know what i mean you have to be really our, our goal is to put our energy next to everybody else's energy and see what we can come up with yeah i i, I love that and i really think there's a fine line right between you know, playing God and feeling like you saving everybody and genuinely trying to help and see what resources we may have where we can partner together and collectively come up with a better solution than if you did it by yourself and I did it by myself, et cetera. I just want to thank you for that because at least for me, that's very reassuring. I need more people like you in my life. So thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> The Freedom Forum would like to send recognition and appreciation out to our LGBTQ plus communities during this 2022 LGBTQ plus history month. Now, let's take a quick break. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In previous episodes, we've talked about corporate authenticity. We've talked about individual authenticity where, you know, particularly corporate authenticity being where a company has to be real and authentic about where they where their culture is, you know, whether it is inclusive, whether it's not, what that evolution has been, etc. And I think that's absolutely real. But you have talked about something kind of similar but a little different with respect to conscience entrepreneurship and I want to I want you to tell me you know and our listeners explain that to us what is conscious entrepreneurship and how can Indiana businesses engage in such practice that not only help their own organization like what you've talked about but also positively impact the community what what tell us about conscious entrepreneurship yeah, so I, whatever words you use for it, I think there's, you know, people talk about ESG, they talk about CSR, there's a lot of these words around corporate responsibility. We try not to get pinned into any one sort of thing, because we're trying to do something more practical. We're trying to be neighbors, and I guess in that in that classic sense of the word, which is, you know, if, if, you, need a, if you need a cup of sugar, we got one, we'll help you out, right? But maybe a day when we have to come call and we need a cup of sugar too. And that's what we're trying to be is trying to figure out, okay, so we have all these things. You guys have all those things. How do we put them together and make something that so one and one equals three? I, that I think is, is being lost in a lot of corporations today. And I want to give a couple of reasons why I think it's important. One, because it's the right thing to do, right? I think it, communities can't exist without that sort of neighborhood view of the world. The other thing is just, okay, let's take it from a business perspective. You, you said it. it, it 
if you're out there and you're, if people see you as they trust you, they see that you're genuinely interested in the community, that you want to be a good neighbor, that you want to help, in times of trouble, it's not the first time we've come calling, right? It's not the first time I've knocked on your door asking for a cup of sugar. I want you to know me. I want you to understand what we're about. I want you to understand where, what our values are before I have to come calling for that cup of sugar. So that's just the practical part of it. it. From an employee part of it, I think our younger folks, they want to be part of an organization that is trying to do something important uh, and trying to be part of the solution. Uh, they want to be engaged. And so that's something we're working on. Now, look, I will tell you, we have we are not perfect on DEI. We have a, a tremendous leader in DEI. We have a long way to go. Um, you know, one of our challenges is we grew up historically in rural communities in our in our organization. There was not a lot of diversity in those rural communities. And so we've got we've got a ways to go. And so I, I don't want to pretend like we've got it all figured out because we don't, but we're working hard at it. But I, I do think it's a matter of trying, right? You have to be able to acknowledge that, okay, we've got some challenges here. Let's let's try to make it better. Um, and we're that's what we're trying to do. That's that authenticity piece, right? We're not there yet. I don't think there's any company who's proclaiming, yes, we've we've done it, right? We've solved the DEI issue. We've got it. I think we're all on a, you know, at a different point on that spectrum, right? And and to the point about corporate authenticity, each organization has to be sincere and realistic about where they fall on that spectrum and where they're trying to get on that spectrum, right? And each company and each organization and each leader personally is going to be at a different place on that spectrum. So you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, I think all we can do is continue chugging along, right? Trying to continually improve along that way. So as I think about, you know, your DNI initiatives, and I totally appreciate that, you know, you haven't got it completely figured out, but you all have done some really excellent things. We talked about the My Cook Pathway program, which I think is phenomenal. And then I certainly want to also talk to you about the 38th and Sheridan Avenue project. So one of my first guests on the Freedom Forum was Akila Darden, who is the president of the Darden Group, who was very involved with the, the Cook Medical Goodwill Project at 38th and Sheridan. And she talked about that um, from the vantage point of being in construction, a female in construction, and providing diverse construction workers for this project that had been deemed one where you were going to invest in the community and continue to, you know, build opportunities for diverse folks. So I would love to hear your uh, position on that, given now that I understand the facility is now open. So, so for those who don't know the background, um, Cook Medical decided that they were going to build a $15 million medical device manufacturing facility in Indianapolis in the 38th and Sheridan Avenue area, so the northeast side of Indianapolis, and in doing so, partnered with not only um, diverse suppliers and vendors, such as what Aquila represented, but also the community to make sure that as you were doing this project, you got the considerations of the community involved. Tell us how you came to that, how Cook decided to partner not only with, you know, Akila and her team, but Goodwill and the the opportunities that have culminated from there. And then give us an update on the project. How's the community doing? How's the facility doing? Yeah, it's been terrific. First of all, Akila is awesome. I am I know how we kind of got connected to her and boy, she was just a a godsend for that project because we set out a goal. We, we set out a goal that people said we couldn't do, which is we wanted 100% minority participation in that project. And that came from a conversation I had with the community, with our neighbors. And they said, this is great. You know, uh, we're excited about the jobs, but hey, if, you know, when you start building this thing, if there's a bunch of white guys building the building, it's going to send a message to us that it's not really for us. Fair enough. Okay. So let's, let's try and work on that. And so we, we started thinking, could we do this? People said no. And then we met Akila and she said, well, yeah, we can do that. Sure we can. He's got to try. And we did. And uh, she made that happen. And we, I think we, something like 60 new people came into the, into the construction industry who had never been in before and had cert construction certifications now. So, you know, it's it just, I those construction projects, again, are another opportunity. If you're going to do them, you can also do them in a way that's a little intentional to help local communities and help people get into jobs they may not have had before. Just think about it a little bit different. So that was exciting. 
the project really came from the discussion around George Floyd's murder, which was what can we do to be active? What can we do to do something that's constructive? And we had this opportunity. We had a need for expansion of our capacity. And we thought, well, we can build them anywhere in the world, really. Why not choose a community that has seen opportunity just go away over the years, right? And that we went and talked to a lot of communities in, in Indianapolis. We met uh, Ashley Gervitz, who runs a community development corporation up there. And I met with a lot of community development corporations. I met with a lot of people. The thing that she did was different. A lot of people came in and said, hey, there's tax incentives, there's this, there's that. She really didn't say any of that. She just said, come meet the people. You have to meet these people. That was interesting. And so we did. And we're like, wow, this community is incredibly connected, passionate. It's nothing like what you hear on the news. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not the, the, the news clips that you see. And that was the important part was, boy, there, you know, because we can't do it alone, right? If, if we're going to do this to be successful, you need partners. And so many people stepped up. So that was how we got there. And, you know, I've been so appreciative. I've met so many great people now that it's really changed my view. Uh, you know, I guess if you told me about 38th and Sheridan and what you hear is it's got high crime rate and high rate of poverty and all these challenges, but that's not really what I see at all. I see a very active community that wants to succeed. That's just so inspiring. And I, I appreciate that you all, I, I think what I heard out of all that was intentionality. You know, you were intentional about it and made it happen. And I think that is necessary because certainly, you know, if you think about some of the places we all need to be as corporations with regard to DE&I, it always seems impossible, right? We're so far from where we'd like to be, where we should be, that the avenue to get there just seems impossible. But, you know, it is about finding the right partners who share the same values and passions that can inch you closer to where you're trying to be. So I'm so thankful that, you know, Akila was there, that you all found each other and made that happen because she has really... Um, just claimed her name with regard to that whole project and really making it happen. And it is so impressive to me to finally meet you and the company behind it that really had the intentionality to say, you know what, we can do this and we're going to do it. I think that's awesome. Um, and an exceptional example of what can be done when organizational leaders just decide we're going to do it. Yeah, when you make that decision, right? If you say we're going to make 100%, all of a sudden, we, if we hadn't made that that goal, we would have never met Aquila, right? But all of a sudden, the, you create this need or for yourself, I guess, in some way, this goal, and all, you start meeting new people. We also partnered with there with Goodwill, who you know most people think about as retail, but they really are they're retail for sure. But they're also they do they do manufacturing. You know, they think they have 4,500 adults in adult high schools throughout the state. There's a tremendous organization and affecting people's lives all over the state. And they provide these wraparound services for folks. And I want to give you a story. So the, the manufacturing facility is up and running and we're making product now that's saving people's lives. Uh, we didn't come up with this, but the the, leader, the team there came up with it. They have this, this mantra of they save two lives with every product. They save the patient's life and the person that's making it, they save their life too. And so what's interesting about that is that we had a group in for a tour and some of the people were sharing their stories. And one of the, one of the employees shared that he'd been in prison for 30 years of his life, that he just got his ankle bracelet off last month. And it was the first time in 30 years that he had been free. And he attributed it to some, finally somebody gave me an opportunity in a job that would work with me that, you know, I, you know, he, he had to take credit for himself. He admitted, he, you know, he made some mistakes, but this was an environment now that somebody believed in him and, and gave him the opportunity. And so he said, I'm free for the first time in 30 years. That's the idea, right? I mean, I suppose we could have made this manufacturing plant, you know, like companies, you could have put it anywhere in the world, but how many of those places are going to have the impact that that had on that person? That's the idea, right? So you can, you can do these, you can do these things. We talk about it, you, can, you know, you can do good business, but you can also do good in the community. And that's true. You can do those things at the same time. It doesn't have to be philanthropy. It doesn't have to be sort of off to the side. Yeah, that that's just phenomenal. I mean, and the amount of impact, I'll say again, with both of those programs, the My Cook Pathway program and this project, Cook 
and all their partners have literally, I mean, changed lives. It is not just a matter of giving a job, but it is literally changing the trajectory of lives and the families that are intertwined with the lives of your workers, of the vendors, of the construction workers. I mean, it all trickles down and elevates everyone involved. So that that's just really exceptional. And I appreciate, again, you sharing those examples because I think so often corporate leaders, you know, sit around and try to brainstorm on what program can we do and what can we invent and what can we make up? And they're never going to get as granular or as impactful as what you've done with both of these programs. And a lot of times it's because they're sitting in a beautiful air-conditioned boardroom that will never see some of the real issues that are happening outside of their million-dollar buildings to really understand how to address real problems. So thank you for that. I think that's really amazing. Yeah, I'll give another example of how that how that works. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to go on a, a ride along with the police department in the community. So I've done that several times now. And one time uh, I was riding along and they said, well, I want to show you this gas station, this gas station. I won't say where, cause we're working with them now, but uh, so this is just an open drug market, right? The community knows it. We know it. Everybody knows it. And so he said, watch as I flip on my lights. I'll flip on my lights and the drug dealers will scatter. And they did of course. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, lots of reasons and we don't have to go into them here, but, we said, okay, well, maybe what we need to do then is get a community coalition together. And and what we did was we got a community coalition together of all the neighborhood presidents and the neighborhood leaders and the church leaders and, and the police department and wrote a letter. We all signed it and said, hey, wrote a letter to the owner of the gas station and said, hey, we're all concerned about this, but we want to help. We're not, you know, we're not here to, to bash you. We want to help. Well, when we talked to that gas station owner, what he said was, what am I supposed to do? I've got, am I going to send my cashier out there? I've got drug dealers who are pulling up to the pump all day long and dealing drugs with guns. They show you the gun. What am I supposed to do? My business is down 50%. I'm going to have to sell this thing. Okay. Well, that's, you know, so it's, it's easy to try to blame the police or blame the owner or blame whatever, but this is really a, a, a community issue that we've got to deal with. And so we're working together with that owner to try to, to clean up that property because it's not, you know, not the community. That's the other thing I think business leaders don't understand is now I talk to the community. They'll say, we've been trying to deal with this issue for years. Nobody would listen. So unfortunately, because maybe because of the size of who we are, right, we can get people around the table to go, we got to solve this problem. That's a, that's a power in that voice that business leaders should understand. They have that power that so many people are, are desperate to have to get that attention and that listening. They can, just by shining the light on some of those issues, they can make real change. So I hope people will take that up. I, we've created something called the, the 24-hour, the CEO challenge, 24-hour challenge. And that is, it's getting at the issue you talked about, which is you can't solve these issues in a boardroom. Um, they just aren't going to happen by a policy or some sort of legislative action. This is not going to be solved that way. And so we created this challenge, which was, you know, don't bring your entourage. Don't give us your community liaison. You as a leader, come out and give us three days of your time, three eight-hour days. And on two of those days, we have you meet all the people we talked about, the church leaders, the not-for-profits, the community leaders, the neighbors. And then the third day, you go and ride along. And to me, that's really fast. It's a small, it's sort of a small version of what we've been able to, to, to experience in our project, but it definitely changes people's ideas about what needs to happen or what, what solutions can be brought to the table because they aren't boardroom solutions. They're, they're neighborhood by neighborhood. They're building by building. They're, you know, working with people. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm hope people will take us up on that challenge because, uh, I've really seen it change people's thinking a lot. Yeah, well, I, I certainly will echo your your challenge. I certainly would welcome, you know, who whoever should be listening to this podcast if you're willing to take Pete up because I too have gone on a ride along with the Stanley K, K. Lacey uh, leadership program. We had to do that for my class, and it is very eye opening. It's it's a different beast to see your city in the wee hours of the morning or the evening, you know, when most people are asleep and see what happens on the corner. Or, I mean, it's, it's very eye-opening and it does get you motivated to, to start thinking about, okay, what can we do to solve these problems? What can we do to make sure that, you know, a 15-year-old can't be out at 3 a.m., you know, with the drug dealers at, you know, whatever random corner lot or whatever. So I, I really appreciate 
appreciate that. So one thing, Pete, I've read you said, and I want to ask you about this. You, you, I'm going to give a quote here where you said, I'm frequently frustrated by the fact that other companies won't dive in, in to do the hard work. And you've talked about this a bit. Um, yet they just want to give money or write a check to improve the brand. Cook is different in that way. We get our hands dirty. We get down in the trenches. We listen. We get involved. We get our pl- employees involved and we work with other organizations. I, I love that quote. I thought it was so real. And so I, I, we, we've talked about this a bit already, but I want you to um, give me a bit of detail around what you believe in addition to your challenge you just put out, what do you believe are some low-hanging fruit that corporate leaders can do to get a little more in the trenches, right? To get a little more, if you are a corporate leader who really is not connected to your most close, diverse community. You don't know people there. You don't live there. You don't necessarily have employees that live there. What could a corporate leader do to get closer to their uh, actual community that would benefit from their investment, from their attention, from their partnership? Yep. So I would say the first thing you need to do is find a connector, a super connector, right? So that's what Ashley was for me. She was somebody who knew everybody in the community. She knows everybody. She knows her kids, knows her spouse. She knows you got to talk to this person. You got to talk to them. As soon as you find that person, go talk to them, go meet them where they are, go sit down, have lunch with them, go figure out what they're doing. Go see their not-for-profit, go see their church. Um, just be with them. So many times I, I have not figured out, this is a question you've asked and you've asked it a couple different ways now, but I have, have been frustrated because I know the talent and the skill sets and the capacity that we have as businesses within Indiana. I know these business leaders. I know the, their capacity to drive change within their organizations, within systems. It just takes a little bit of shift in their thinking to say, boy, we could really do that too. You know, you know, this next building project, this next job opening could be maybe for somebody who doesn't have a high school diploma, or it could be for um, somebody who says, you know, we've got to build a building or want to expand our manufacturing. Let's do this in a way. I think that the, the biggest challenge is is what you said before, it's an uncomfortableness with going out and meeting and meeting people who are not in their normal community. And it's not a race issue. Or it's, I think it's more of a, if you're, if you're not comfortable going out and, and being in the homeless shelter or going and talking to the person who's running a, uh, a food pantry, you got to get comfortable. You, you it's great. You, you, you know, we all know this as business leaders. Every time you go into an uncomfortable situation, it changes you. I always joke about them as character building opportunities, right? Every time you have a challenge, it's, it's character building. Um, but I think it's true. I th- you know, maybe the challenge is to get people to be uncomfortable and to meet people they don't know. I mean, I've been part of it. I've been part of the the, the rubber chicken circuit, right? You go, the, you go to all these different meetings and you go to these different seminars and you see the same people all the time and, oh, hey, how you doing? It's very comfortable. But it's not comfortable going out and meeting people you don't know or, or meeting people who are having challenges. Uh, so I guess that's the suggestion I would make is have people go out and be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's excellent. I have a question about some of that uncomfortableness, but what I want to ask you as we begin to wrap up is, you know, I've always said that one of the benefits for me with diversity, equity, inclusion is the ability to meet so many different people. Like that brings a richness to my life that I just couldn't know. I enjoy talking to people who know things that I just could never know, but for talking to them, like I would just never know those things that that intrigues me. It stimulates me. But I I also appreciate there are so many people who that brings them anxiety. It stresses them like they're just not what as you've gotten out clearly and and been amongst the people and been in the community and the homeless shelters and the churches and every place else. What benefits outside of economics? Right. We, we've talked about Cook and some of the ROI on diversity. But personally, what are some of the benefits that you have gleaned from just just being or getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable, getting more comfortable with being amongst folks that are not who you're going to see at the golf club or the, you know, your church meeting, but still, you know, you're meeting these folks and learning about their stories. You've talked so much about how you've been amongst folks, you know, on, on this conversation. How has it changed you? How has it impacted you more personally beyond the professional? Well, I'll tell you, I was just up at our site on Friday of last week, 
and I got one of the biggest compliments I think I can get, which is one of the employees said, you know what? You're invited to the barbecue. <laughs> that is definitely <laughs> the compliment. That means you're in the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I felt pretty good about that. That was, that was fun. Um, but I, you know, I think it's just, it's, that's what you said. You're meeting people that, you know, I didn't know what life was like on the Northeast side of Indianapolis. I didn't grow up there. Uh, I didn't know about the history. I didn't know about the the vibrant times that community had and, and how it's changed over the years. I met some of these, you know, some of these neighborhood presidents that uh, are there. Some of them, you know, some of them have been there for 40, 50 years and they can tell you about the time when this was a great place to live. And um, there was a you know a restaurant in every corner and there was just, it was vibrant and they're desperate to bring that back. And at least they have something, you know, not, not exactly like it was, but they want hope. Right. And so just to meet people and these people who are doing these amazing things with shoestring budgets, I, I'm always fascinated. I try to understand their psyche of this is a calling, right? How did, how, what, what in you enabled that calling to, to make that happen? So um, I think that's the richness of it. The other thing I will tell you is it just changed my thinking. Uh, it changed my thinking in sort of night and day sometimes on things. So when I think about economic development, I, I can cite you chapter and verse what economic development should be and all how people, you know, how economic development programs work and what the metrics are for success. I'm not sure those are right anymore. I've learned that a lot of those times economic development is just economic development for somebody else to try to create high-end jobs. And all that stuff is important, right? We need to do all that. Uh, but I, I, one of the things that really affected me was I, I met a gentleman who we are a part of, Cook is a part of 16 Tech and very supportive. It's going to be an amazing process, right? It's an amazing thing for the state of Indiana. But there's another part of that you can't deny, which was Gentleman said, look, I've lived in that community for 30 years and we had some plans and then the state dropped a $100 million UFO on our laps and said, be happy about it. That's that's not a perspective you can deny. And and so it's changed my thinking. So what we're trying to do, whether it's in Bloomington or in Canton, Illinois, where we're at, or it's in Indianapolis, is figure out how do we do what we say we're going to do is try to reach, enable people to reach their full potential in the communities where they are. And so it's Hopefully, as our work around Indianapolis is provide an opportunity for the community there, uh, for people who are there. We don't, you know, the last thing we want to do is just create the next hip neighborhood where everybody comes in and the, and the rents go up by five times. And and then by every economic development factor, you're a success because you've increased wages, you've increased tax revenue, but you haven't been a success because you haven't enriched the lives of the people who are there today. So I guess that's one way. It's just it just changed my thinking about things in a, in a more practical sense or it just gave me a different perspective. That is very heartening to me. I, I, You've inspired me if you haven't inspired anybody else by this conversation. So I, I want to thank you. And with my last question, I'm just going to ask you, you know, give us a few tips or tools you would encourage any business leader in Indiana who's serious about getting a little more serious, getting a little more entrenched in what real DE&I looks like and how that can have community or corporate impact. Give us a few tips that you'd leave folks with. Yeah. I, I don't know that I would go to any more seminars. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't go to any more education or training. I'm not sure that, I mean, those are important, of course, but I'm not sure that's really what's going to change the move the needle. You know, I give an example. One of the neighborhood the, the neighborhood associations are talking about primarily black communities up there, and but they've got a lot of um, Hispanic uh, neighbors that are moving in, and they're like, you know, they're saying we we don't know them, we don't speak the language. How do we how do we reach out to them? Well, okay, that's the same process we're going to have to go through. We're going to have to get to meet people and and do all that. I guess I would say if you really want to learn about D and I, is be uncomfortable. Go to uh, go to these places and meet people that are not like you and and start to understand the the vibrancy and the fun parts of it. You know, I think people so people are always always there's always a tendency to look for problems as challenges as a business leader. But I think you can go and find the times to celebrate and see how people celebrate what's good about their communities and have fun. Uh, that changes that changes your perspective too. I brought my boys with me to an event up in Indianapolis. They were doing a baseball event for uh, one of the parks up there and. You know, I, I think that opened their eyes, right? I'm they, you know, we live in primarily a, a white community. Bloomington just is. It's it's diverse, but not you know the, the most diverse place in the world. And so, thankfully, their school is pretty diverse. And but I think for them to be able to see not just racial diversity, but also socioeconomic diversity, and understand the differences there, I think that's you know just to to be out and experience life at its fullest and in every part of it and to be able to understand what the joys are and the challenges are, I guess is my suggestion. 
Well, I, I need to tell you personally, I thank you. I, you you've, you've touched me today. You have given me a bit more hope than I had before I spoke with you. I thank you for all that you're doing and more just being willing to speak out and be an example to what you can do. I hear so many corporate leaders say, hey, you know, I'm a white man. I don't know what I, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing about this DE&I stuff. I don't know. I And I, I think you've just given a whole lot of examples of how, you know, white males are critical to the shift, the evolution, the, you know, the move along the spectrum and how you can just get to know your neighbors more. I mean, I think beyond DE&I, we as as America just need to get back to being a little more neighborly, being a little more willing to, you know, offer that cup of sugar and say, hey, if I can help you, I'm here because I don't know when I'm going to need you to give me a cup of sugar. I think that's just generally what's needed well beyond the DNI spectrum. That's very well said. I'll leave you one last story. Uh, I was talking to a business leader and he was asking about how do you get on the commute? You know, he was, he was wanting to try and figure out, okay, how do I do this? But, you know, he, he mentioned the same thing as a, as a white guy. Do people want me there? Do people want me to, to be engaged in this? And he'd gotten some advice that maybe what we should do is create a uh, you know, community liaison uh, who is more reflective of the community, who is black. And I thought, no, that's the, I think that's the exact wrong answer. I think because you are white and because you need to go talk to people, right, and build that trust. And, and, I, and I hate to make it a racial thing because it's really not. It's just more about understanding people and communities like don't don't buffer yourself between communities and and somebody else you know experience it yourself yeah yeah and i think that's the most genuine and real advice that we've probably had on on this show is you just got to get out there there is no circumventing the discomfort sometimes in order to get comfortable you just got to allow yourself to be uncomfortable and mm -hmm. i think that's part we've talked on the show many times about how necessary is discomfort in the work of diversity equity and inclusion i think what you've convinced us is it's necessary you, you especially if you're not already amongst the community. You're going to have to get a little bit uncomfortable in order to better effectuate DEI at your organization. With that, Pete, I thank you so much. Thank you for spending your time talking with us, for being such a empathetic leader, for one who's willing to put himself out there in every way, literally go into the community and then come on here with me and talk about what you've learned, how you've changed, what you've seen. I think this is exactly what we need more of is for more, you know, leaders, diverse and non-diverse to personally speak on how they've been able to navigate DEI in a way that's been, you know, impactful and beneficial for not only their company, but also the community. So with that, I thank you so much again. And thanks for joining us on the 15th episode of the Freedom Forum. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you again to Pete Youngman, and thanks to you for joining us on this 15th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.